Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. Or are you? Okay, anyway, let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at this text. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here. You've joined us in the middle of a series we've called When God Came Down. And what we're doing with this series is a study that I was doing, and I noticed that there were a couple of passages where it says God came down, like God left heaven and came to earth, and I thought that was fascinating. I wanted to see if there was symmetry between those moments, and I began to see a few things that I thought were quite unique. And we have been looking at this moment because what I realized was when God came down, he came to bring us something we had thrown away or broken. He came to restore something, and it was his presence that restored it. And so he joined us here on earth in a very unique way. Now, I don't want you to imagine that God is distant and removed and has to take a three-day trip to come see us. He's with us all the time. But there's significant moments where it says that he came to join us. We opened the series with looking in the garden when God came down after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against him. And he showed up and he disciplined Satan and Adam and Eve. And he gave them something to believe in. He gave them someone to trust by making a promise to them when they themselves were untrustworthy. And so our first week, we talked about when God came bringing trust. Last week, Drake Holderman preached a message about God coming down to the city of Babel where they were building a tower for their own glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to show off how powerful and intellectual and everything else they were and really make a statement about who they were. And I've always enjoyed that text because the original language seems to intimate that God looked down on that and chuckled. Like, isn't that cute? They're trying to reach me. And it even says that God had to look down. He had to squint to see what they were doing. And yet they thought they were building something that everybody would notice. God came down and he did a unique thing. He disciplined them. But what he did was he took away their ability to communicate with one another. And it sent them out into all the world. You see, sometimes God's greatest blessings are not giving us something more. Some of his greatest blessings are when he takes something away from us. And so we learned last week that God came down bringing glory because when we realize that our glory can only be found in his, that when we reflect the goodness of God and we live out the fruitful life of being led by the spirit, that we actually will find the only glory that will never be taken from us. And then it ends up not being about us. It ends up being about Jesus. And that's the perfect glory. This week, we're going to be looking at a moment where God came visiting us. But the core of this entire series is that Christmas is sinful And I don't mean in the the typical, you know, old-fashioned Hollywood preacher where I'm yelling about exchanging gifts or talking about Santa Claus or doing this or doing that. No, those things aren't in my heart. Christmas is sinful. It's the reason we celebrate it. Because of our sin, because of what we did to this world, God sent Jesus. So Christmas is actually because of sin, which means it's sinful. And he came to redeem us in this wonderful moment. So today we're going to have a moment where God gives a vision to a man named Isaiah. And that vision is profound as to one of the gifts you've already received for Christmas that I want us to celebrate. In fact, ultimately, when we're all said and done, I'm not going to give you something big to do. I'm just going to ask you to stop and ruminate on what you've already received and what a perfect gift it is. When we talk about the promise given to Isaiah, I want you to know that a promise isn't true because we believe it. It's true because it's fulfilled. The best promises in the world aren't the ones we hope come true. They're the ones that do come true. 
And sometimes, if you're anything like me, you've made a promise to someone hoping you could fulfill it, intending to fulfill it, but not being 100% certain. I want you to know that our Father makes promises to us that he will guarantee 100% will happen exactly as he said for the exact reasons he said he would. And today we're going to look at one of those. God came down to restore wisdom. Wisdom is a unique thing in our world. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like I need it more now than ever. Wisdom is different than knowledge. Knowledge is information and processing information. It's logical and it's good and we need knowledge. Wisdom is how to take that knowledge and to live a life worth living. Wisdom is understanding why all knowledge exists and what its purpose is and and how do we live together in unity the way God created us to. The book of Isaiah is a complicated book. It's a challenging book. It's an intricate book of moments where God speaks to a set group of people in a set group of time, but it also has this echo that carries it into our future and affects us as well. This is a moment in history where Isaiah is given a promise of judgment and a promise of deliverance. And the background of this book, I so much just want to jump right ahead and say, well, God promised this, this, and this, and he did this, this, and this. But to really appreciate the book of Isaiah, I think we have to understand the context of it for it to make sense. There are 66 chapters in the book. The first five are quite intricate because God is delivering a message to the people of Judah. And he's, he's calling them, if I can use my terminology, he's letting them know that they're petulant brats, that they think it's all about them, that they want what they want and they stomp their feet when, feet when they don't get it, that they have forgotten, Isaiah will say, you've forgotten the father who has been kind and good and generous and benevolent to you. He also refers to them as a garden that God planted to produce beautiful fruit. Instead, it's producing thorns and weeds, and it's not doing what it was created to do. He tells them they're just like Sodom and Gomorrah, which he had wiped off the face of the earth. He tells them that their worship was offensive to God because they weren't worshiping God. They were worshiping what God could do for them. And then they lived like pagans, trusting in idols, wealth, and military might. It's the first part of the history. Those are the first five chapters. Now we get to chapter six, which is really unique because chapter six should actually be chapter one, but it's a flashback. You see, he tells them that God looks down on you as spoiled children who are rejecting the the wisdom and goodness of the father. And then in chapter six, Isaiah tells us how he got this information. Why is he telling them this? Because in chapter six, God came down and met Isaiah in the temple. In a powerful moment, he speaks to them, or speaks to Isaiah, so that Isaiah can speak to the brats. But the opening line of chapter 6 is interesting. In the year that King Uzziah died. So now we got to know who's this guy. Well, this guy's significant. And if I jump this context, you could make moments of the first six chapters of Isaiah that shouldn't be made. So let's talk about this king for a bit. He was a good king. There were moments of his life he was a God-fearing king. He had brought prosperity to Judah, protected them in battles. He'd done some amazing things. He built up a strong army. He had a good economy. The people were prospering. It was the kind of king that they wanted, and they loved Uzziah. But Uzziah is like any other person, male or female. Very few of us finish well. We start strong and purposeful, but we become either intoxicated by our power, our authority, and this happens to Uzziah. Uzziah is king, right? Kings do what kings do. Kings do whatever they want. So Uzziah, to bless his people, decided to go into the holy temple and offer a sacrifice on the holy altar. He didn't ask God's permission. He was not asked to do this. He did it because he was king. I can do what I want. And he did what he wanted, and he got what he should have never have wanted. 
God looked down on this sinful man and his pride and arrogance, offering a sacrifice on the temple, or on the, uh, in the temple, on the altar, and God struck him with leprosy. And Uzziah walked out just a man. He thought he was something more, but he walked out just a man, and he was sick, and he needed healing. And the rest of his life was on again, off again, on again, off again. But he brought prosperity to Judah, and then he dies. King Uzziah is gone, and the people are worried. People are nervous. The people are saying, who's going to lead us? Who's going to make us prosperous? Who's going to protect us? Who's going to serve our needs? They weren't looking for someone to worship. They were looking for someone to serve them. Uzziah had gone into the temple and defiled it. and God had punished him. And years later when he died, the people just kept calling out, who is going to take care of us? Please give me a moment of grace, but I realize what I'm about to say could get me in a lot of trouble. I'm not looking for that, but not afraid of it either. Because isn't this our culture today? No matter how you came out of the national election, there's so many people asking the same question. Well, who's going to care for me? Who's going to protect me? Who's going to guide me? I got an answer. It's why we meet here every Sunday. God. He's got it. He's never been threatened for a second. He's not surprised by the virus. He's not surprised by the election. God in his infinite wisdom knows everything and no single ruler, your choice or not, affects any of that. We're the same nation that Judah was, crying out, who's gonna take care of me, church? God is. He always has and he always will. Yes, there are consequences to to manly and womanly leadership. There absolutely is. And, and we trust the Lord in that and we will remain faithful to God and we will love and serve and pray for those even that we disagree with. But at the end of the day, let us not mistake our, our trust is not in a man or a woman. It's not in who's in the White House. It's not in who's in Congress. It's who's sitting on the throne of judgment. And that's a good father that sits there. And he's for us. So in the moment that Uzziah had gone in the temple and defiled it. It's amazing that Isaiah has a vision and he sees into the temple. And in the temple, he sees God. In the place that Uzziah profaned as a man, the real ruler shows up and he gives Isaiah a vision. Let's read it. Isaiah chapter six, verses one through nine. I'm gonna be reading it from the contemporary English version. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah had a vision of the Lord. He was on his throne high above and his robe filled the temple. Flaming creatures with six wings each were flying over him as they shouted, holy, 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 Lord, all powerful. The earth is filled with your glory. As they shouted, the doorposts of the temple shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And then I cried out, Isaiah cried out, I'm doomed. Everything I say is sinful. And so are the words of everyone around me. Yet I have seen the king, the Lord, all powerful. One of the flaming creatures flew over to me with the burning coal that he'd taken from the altar. It touched my lips and the hot coal with the hot coal and said, this has touched your lips. Your sins are forgiven and you are no longer guilty. After this, I heard the Lord ask, is there anyone I can send? Will someone go for us? I'll go, I answered. Send me. Then the Lord told me to go and speak this message to the people. You see, in this flashback, Isaiah is saying, the reason I'm telling you this is because God appeared to me and he told me to say this, the almighty king. And there's some amazing things going on in this scene. Think about all he saw. He saw this this tiny little room, the Holy of Holies, and he saw it filled with smoke and flames. It would remind you of the, the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness. And in this moment, he sees this. But let's talk about those flying, flaming things, right? The angels. 
And yet we're thinking we could talk about that and that'd be awesome. We could talk about the, the smoke and the fire in the room and that would be awesome. That'd be necessary. We could talk about the coal that came off the altar and touched his lips and cleansed him, that there's a purification of God's holiness that needs to take place in all of us. That would be a sermon worth preaching, but no, I'm not going to cover any of those. What I want you to see is something fascinating to me. Isaiah tells all the background. He says, and all of that happened, and I saw what? A king. When the world's lamenting and mourning, what happened to Uzziah? Isaiah's like, no, no, I saw the king, not a king. I saw the king, the God all-powerful in his place of authority, in his place of prominence. And there's something by knowing and seeing God for who he is. It's called wisdom. Job. In the story of Job, you know that Job had some catastrophe happen in his life, a lot of difficulties, and he trusted in God. And there was a moment that Job becomes angry at all he's lost when he reasons through it. And he starts to say, I'm going to ask God some questions. And God says to him, well, let me start. Let me ask you some questions, and then you can ask me yours. And we all know the end of the story. After God's done asking Job all these questions, Job's like, I'm good. Thanks, I'm fine. Because when he realized God's wisdom, he understood who he was. And in Job 28, it says, where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. We don't own it, in other words. The deep says it's not in me, and the seas say it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Verse 28, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. That's fascinating the way that it comes to Job. He says, to know the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To to fear the Lord, to know who he is, is where wisdom comes from. And when we understand it, you'll know you're living a wise life when you choose to shun evil rather than embrace it. We have so, such a strange theology in our world today that because of the grace of Jesus, I can keep going back to the tree and eat of the fruit that was forbidden because he's gonna forgive it anyway. No, 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 no. Wisdom would never say take advantage of grace. Wisdom would say let grace take advantage of you. You see, when we have understanding and we shun evil, we don't even go back to the forbidden tree to taste its fruit. We trust the one who told us not to in the beginning. And in the beauty of all of this moment, we have Isaiah seeing God, seeing the king in the temple. And what's his first response? I should die. He doesn't say that God told me die, that God threatened me. He looks at the king in the beauty and the majesty and he says these words, I should be dead. I have rebelled against him. I have rejected him. I am a sinful man. And God gives a purification act and brings the coal and touches his lips and says, I will take care of your sin. Speak for me. Share what I'm sharing with you. See, you and I will never know how to live our lives until we've truly understood who God is. And then when we understand God, we learn the wisdom of life to shun evil, to fear the Lord, and to trust him. And we have been given this wisdom, but this wisdom is a light in darkness. You see, we traded away the wisdom of life that God gave us in the garden. All of us have. You say, I'm not Adam and Eve, but you have done what they've done. And you've taken the light of God and you've thrown it, cast it into the darkness, and we're surrounded by the darkness and we don't know our way out. In fact, it'll say in Isaiah chapter nine, coming up a little bit later, that we have seen a great light that has penetrated the darkness. It's Jesus. 
So God sends us this man, this king, who becomes our wisdom to know how to live life, to not just have knowledge of God, but to have an experience with God from that knowledge and from his character. In Isaiah chapter eight, verses 13, it says, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread, and he will be a sanctuary. But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that will make them fall. God says to Isaiah, here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna show myself to the people and I'm gonna do an amazing act. I'm gonna bring my wisdom to light, but those surrounded in the darkness will not listen and they will trip over it repeatedly and they will fight against it forever. And those who open themselves up to my wisdom and live the life and follow me into this life of truth and light, I will change them. In other words, what the prophecy says is God will either become your, your sanctuary or he'll become your threat. God will either be the thing that you lean into when this world's upside down or it'll be the thing that threatens your comfort and your peace. You see, when they cried out, where is our king? They weren't looking for a king to serve. They were looking for someone to meet their needs. God will either be the sanctuary we run to or the threat we trip over. In fact, if I can summarize chapter eight, it sounds like this. God says, I'm gonna discipline you. I'm gonna send you away for your sins and then you're not gonna like it but then I'm gonna restore you and I'm gonna bring you back. And you're gonna understand that I'm not to be trifled with, but you're also gonna understand that I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for your good. I'm stripping you from your idolatries. I'm, I'm taking these things away from you and restoring you. And that's the message we need today. Now, no one's asked me to do this, but if I were gonna give a title to 2020, it would come from a 1970s Marvin Gaye song, What's Going On? That would be the title of this year. Now, a buddy of mine in Michigan who heard First Hour, he texted me and he said, or you could call the ball of confusion. And I was like, fair enough, I get it. Motown, we get it, right? But if you look at this year, I don't know about you, but I've been singing in my head and heart all year long since spring break in March, what's going on? And the problem is nobody can answer it. And any answer we get lasts about what, 12 minutes? And then it changes, So the theme is what's going on. And this is the world Isaiah was in. This is what Judah was going in. King Uzziah is dead. Who's gonna care for me? Who's gonna provide for me? Who's gonna protect me? Who's gonna be my leader? What's going on? So God comes down in a vision to a prophet. And he says to a world crying out, what's going on? He said, I have all of this under my control. I am not threatened I am not surprised, I'm not caught off guard, I am with you. You are living in darkness and I'm gonna bring a great light to you and that light is gonna change everything and that light is gonna show you me in a more deeper way than you've ever understood me. And God says, yes, there will be moments of discipline but they're all for your good. Isaiah chapter eight, verses 19 through 22. The people are then gonna turn for the answer to what's going on and he says, when people tell you, try out the fortune tellers, consult the spiritualists, Why not tap into the spirit world? Get in touch with the dead. Tell them, no, we're gonna study the scriptures. People who try the other ways get nowhere, a dead end. Frustrated and famished, they try one thing after another. When nothing works out, they get angry, cursing first this God and then that one, looking this way and that, up, down, sideways, seeing nothing, a blank wall, an empty hole. They end up in the dark with nothing. And God knew that was a condition. They were turning to every source to answer the question, what's going on? And so God came down. 
you might be asking yourself, what does this have to do with Christmas? The kids just sang. We haven't talked about Christmas at all. There's no sentimentality. There's no cookies. Those decorations, what are you doing? Showing you that the gift of Christmas was not a baby. It was a king. It was the answer to our fears. It's the answer to the question, what's going on? God says, let me show you. I'm going to send you what's going on. Two weeks ago, in a throwaway line, I mentioned that I've been struggling with anger, and I don't know why I'm mad. When people say, what's the matter? The honest answer is, I don't know. I'm not avoiding a fight. I just find myself getting madder and madder by the minute because I'm not controlling my world, and I don't know how to. What was surprising me was the number of you that reached out to me through email or text or saw me around town and said, I'm glad you said that, or I'm struggling with that too. It's good to know we're not alone in this. But I want you to understand there's a level of not alone far beyond companionship. We're not alone because God came down to be with us. And even in the moments, we cry out, what's going on? So whether right now you're in a good place or a bad place, in a scary place or a safe place, if it's not sourced in the presence of God the Father, the King, it's only temporary. Because in Isaiah chapter 9, after talking about the people lived in darkness, now they've seen a great light. These words come. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government. Let's pause for a moment. Why did I tell you all that stuff about King Uzziah? Why did I tell you about his reign and his power and his authority and his goodness? Because listen to what God says through Isaiah to the people. You're looking at the wrong government. You're looking at mankind to take care of your needs. God says, I am your need. I am your ultimate satisfaction. So for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, praise God. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and holding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty has accomplished this. This is so full of good. So when the world cries out, what's going on? And what, what human is going to protect me and care for me and do it my way? God says, dismiss. I'm going to send a king who's going to do it his way. And it will work. Remember, a promise isn't good because we believe it. A promise is good because it's fulfilled. So he says, I'm going to send one whose government is going to be greater than any human government, any political party, any claim. And he's going to be better than David and better than Solomon and better than what other king you love, Uzziah, and those who followed He's going to have strength and honor and integrity. He's going to be who you will follow. And then it says that the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let me rephrase that. God said, this is going to happen because I want it to. It's not like a parent looking at a kid who's tired of arguing over curfew. And they're like, just a half hour longer. And the parent goes, okay, whatever. Just stop talking. This is God looking at his children going, no, you, you don't know what you need. The reason we cry out what's going on is because we have never been in control. And God says, but I am going to implement my way, my wisdom. And if you trust my wisdom, you're going to see it deliver you every time. And God says, this is the way I want it. This is my heart for you. This is not punishment. This is not appeasing you. This is the goodness of the Father. It's God's zeal to give us Jesus. This is what God wanted all along. Back when he promised to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 that I'm going to send one. 
It's God's passion. Do you hear him? He said, I'm going to come after you and I'll never quit coming after you. And I will be your mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful counselor. And the New Testament picks up all the time on Jesus' wisdom. In fact, one of the common expressions is, who has ever taught with such authority? And sometimes they said, he's, he's unschooled. How does he know all of this? Because he was God's wisdom. He was, as John would say, the logos, the words of God. And he would reveal God to us in God's perfect way. He is a wonderful counselor. And all I want you to do, as I said from the beginning, is ruminate. I want your tail to wag this morning with what you already have now. You don't have to unwrap it. It's been here. And it's for you. And God wants it this way. As our wisdom, our wonderful counselor, Jesus is with you. You see, God did not just come down to observe. God didn't just look down and go, oh, look at them struggling. I'm going to get closer to see what they're really going through. No, God came down and joined us. He joined us in the garden. He joined us at Babel. He joined us here in the temple. He'll join us again and again and again, and then he will walk among us as grace and truth. He wants to restore shalom, peace. But it just doesn't mean not fighting. Shalom means that you're right with God and that you're right within your own soul and that you're right with one another. Only God can bring that. Only God's government can supply that. You see, he's with us. As a wonderful counselor, he's the reason to have courage. Well, how? Because God's wisdom requires faith. It requires knowing who spoke the promises and knowing by his character alone they'll be fulfilled. It requires courage. Well, how does it require courage? Well, think about it. Isaiah walks into a flaming room with fiery flying things, with coal going everywhere, with the fear that he should die for, being, for having seen this powerful moment. And then God says, I need someone to go for me. And Isaiah had just said, I am unqualified. But in that moment, what does he say? I- I- I'll go. What makes a man or a woman stand up against the wisdom of the world and stand for the wisdom of God? It takes courage. But the wisdom of God brings us that courage because it's not about our ability. It's not about our words. Who is going to tell your friends that God is not the angry father ready to to pluck them off his earth, but instead he's a loving, compassionate, wise, giving, peace-giving, peace-honoring, loving father? This is the moment where your heart says, I'll go. Send me. It takes courage to step into faith to not just believe the knowledge of Jesus, but actually enter into the wisdom of Jesus. As a wonderful counselor, he showed us by the love of the cross, by his compassion, by his goodness, that he can be trusted. It'll take courage, though, when God calls for you to say, I'll speak, I'll stand when the world sits, and I'll sit when the world stands, and I'll do it for the glory of God. I'll do it for the honor of God. This life will be threatening, and it will cause you to shake It is okay to cry out what's going on. God knows we don't know. God also knows that he's with us each and every step. And as a wonderful counselor, he's our guide to fulfillment. The only peace we'll know is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the wisdom of God is to abstain from evil and to live for him, to follow him, to trust him, to guide him. You see, we received thousands of years ago a king one that we can place our trust in, regardless of what world leaders do, good, bad, and indifferent, regardless of what you think they ought to do and how you think they ought to do it, at the end of the day, we have a king and he does everything right and he does everything well and he will fulfill every single promise. We have no worries 
If Jesus says he will, he will. And he will come one day and he will invite those that have sought him as a sanctuary. He will love us for following him. And for those who reject him and stumble over him and his wisdom and his knowledge and his character and they stumble over him, he will love them, but he will judge them as he promised because they've rejected the only salvation that's there for them. Church, what a gift we have. What a gift we've been given to have a wisdom that teaches us who the Father is. It puts fear in our our hearts that we're unworthy, but it gives us courage and presence and purpose that when God says, who will proclaim the work of my king? You and I get to answer, here am I, send me. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.